Every Christmas season, as I read through the story of the birth and the life of Jesus, I, I can't help but, but grow more curious. It's kind of what I'm like. I, I just have this deep curiosity about a lot of different things, and, and especially this Christmas story, a story of a child being born. Like, what's the big deal? I, I can't help but actually ask questions around this narrative, around this story. And it, it's amazing how one simple narrative, one narrative in the Bible that is really only one chapter long can speak in different ways to different people year after year after year. And, and as I read this year, I came upon the story that was just read to you on the screen. The story of Jesus, baby Jesus, being presented in the temple. It's the kind of story that we often read past quickly so, so that we can, you know, really just get to the good stuff, you know, the miracles and the, all the different things that Jesus did and the, his death and his resurrection on the cross. We tend to kind of look at the first two chapters in the Gospel of Luke and just kind of quickly skim past them to get to the good stuff. Yet when I became curious about this odd story, I couldn't help but be captured by its message. It's reminder, folks, to never take any word in Scripture for granted. You see, everything is there for a reason. Everything is there so that God can communicate to us through these different narratives. So why on earth is Luke sharing this story? That's the first question that my curiosity brings to a head is, why, Luke? Why on earth are you sharing this story? Especially if you know anything about what Luke does in his Gospels, Luke can at times be very dismissive of things that we would see as important things in the narrative and at other times give us great detail with great physician precision. The simple fact that Luke tells us this story over 14 verses should jump out to us with a glaring neon sign that reads, don't ignore this section. Throughout every verse in scripture, there is history. There, there is literature styles and narrative that involves different characters that are packed full of backstories. And this story that Luke gives us in this narrative is no different. It's about an old, devout, and righteous man named Simeon. That's who Luke presents to us. Simeon, the scriptures tell us, is being led and spoken to by the Holy Spirit. Now, to us Christians, we're like, yeah, heard that before. Yeah, I experienced that all the time. You know, maybe you don't, maybe you do. But to a lot of us Christians, being led and spoken to by the Holy Spirit, we're just like, uh-huh, heard that before. The preacher mentions it all the time. But in this context, folks, you need to understand how huge of a statement this actually is, especially because the nation of Israel at this time in history has not heard from God for over 400 years. 
So a simple statement of, of Simeon being led by the Spirit, spoken to by the Spirit, this is something that has been very rare in their time. It's interesting that at the end of the last book of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, we've taken from them, the Jewish scriptures, they end like this in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. Listen to what it says. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day. That's interesting wordplay, isn't it? Before the great and dreadful day of the, capital letters, Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Imagine that. And the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Then nothing for 400 years. Nothing. I mean, that's how it lands, right? Nothing for 400 years. Literally, folks, by turning the next page of your Bible to the New Testament, you are traveling into an era that is 400 years later. This is really important, folks, to remember as we begin to ask questions that the, about the story that Luke is sharing. You see, devout, righteous people who are being led and spoken to by the Holy Spirit, they're few and far between at this time in history. And so Luke telling us that Simeon is devout and directly connected to the Spirit of God is extremely important to listen to. It's that neon sign saying, pay attention to this. The Spirit, the passage says, has told Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Think about this. God has gone silent. No more prophets. No intervention in the life of the nation by God at all. The people had been waiting for the promise of a king that would lead the people to salvation, to freedom. And, and, and this has been a thing since the time of Moses. So this is like thousands of years that the people have been waiting for this coming king that scriptures talked about. Moses shares it in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. He says, the Lord, your God, will rise up for you, a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must Listen to him. I love that it says consider. It doesn't say consider listening to him. It doesn't say argue about whether you should or shouldn't listen to him. You know, debate around these different things of how we go about. It just says you must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord, your God, at Horeb on the day of the assemblies when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will rise up from them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. That's huge, folks. So this prophet that, that he will raise up from among the Israelites, he's going to literally put his words, God's words, in his mouth. He will tell them everything I commanded. That means he will re reveal to us everything that God is expecting of us. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. 
So it's big news. Big news to Simeon. When the Holy Spirit says to him, you will not die until he sees the Lord's Messiah. It means that that something a nation has been waiting for for thousands of years, Simeon will actually see with his own eyes. Now, I also want you to keep in mind that through history, there's been many who claimed to be the Messiah. It was kind of a thing. You know, like if you want to be really important and you want to, like in any culture, you know, in our culture, it might be a sports athlete or, or whatever. Uh, but in their culture, it was like if you were actually the Messiah, you were a big deal. And so there was a lot of warrior kings, people who would lead armies into war and they would win and conquer nations and do all these different things. And as they grew in their success, they would say, I'm the Messiah. And the people would rally around that and go, oh, yeah, because everything is always about war and beating nations and killing people. And that is obviously the way that we would recognize who the Messiah should be. A lot of people claimed to be the Messiah, but they were proven to be false claims. And it's really simple to know because they died. They passed away. They died either in battle or old age or whatever. But there were, they were accomplished warriors, and so it seemed like it could be true, but it just never, ever panned out. You see, the, the, the Israelites were always looking for a warrior king. And maybe that was part of the problem. Because for centuries, they might have been looking for the wrong kind of king. Now, anyway, let's get back to the text. So Simeon, moved by the Spirit, goes to the temple as he waits for God to rescue Israel. That's what the text says. Simeon, moved by the Spirit, goes to the temple as he waits for God to rescue Israel. He's waiting for God to rescue Israel. Doesn't that make you curious? Rescue Israel from what? You see, if one takes a step back and and looks at the Jews in the time of Jesus, the time that this story is being written, you might actually think that times actually aren't that bad. Based on a lot of our assessments and the things we're experiencing today, we'd be like, that's not too bad. You know, sure, the Romans are in charge. But but they seem to be allowing the Jews to live their religion. They they put little things around it here and there, and there's little tiffs and, and tats occasionally, but... They, the Jews have their high priests, they, they have the temple, they have their synagogues, they have their own form of government called the Sanhedrin. The rabbis are free to travel around teaching the scriptures. Like, things don't actually seem that bad at all, do they? But actually, I would say that they're horrible. I would say that they're horrible, but if you, if you listen to what I just said, like, these are the things that we as Christians currently fight for today. We want to go around, we want to preach, we want to do our thing, we want to have the freedom of religious speech, we want to have the freedom to meet together, all these different things. I just defined it for you that they have all of those things in this passage right now, and yet you nod and say, but it was horrible. Then why do we fight for horrible things? Why is it horrible? 
You see, in order to understand that, we need to go back to the 400 years between testaments, the intertestament era, to understand why I'm saying that these things were not as rosy as we think they are. And I would say they're not as rosy as we think they are even today. After all, the text says that Simeon is waiting for Israel to be rescued. And I would say that we're still waiting to be rescued in many ways today too. But that's next week's sermon. So over the 400 years span, where God seems absent, plenty of events took place that shape the nation of Israel to become what we see in the New Testament. Like, for instance, have you ever noticed that groups we as Christians are very familiar with are not actually in the Old Testament at all? For example, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. None of these groups existed in the Old Testament text at all. How about the concept of a synagogue that didn't exist? How about Roman governors, the Herod family? None of these things were a reality in the times of the Old Testament. Because by turning one page, we miss 400 years of backstory, and it's this backstory that helps us understand the significance of this text in Luke. Events such as the Maccabean Revolt, all Christians should be very well versed in the Maccabean Revolt. As soon as I say the Maccabean Revolt, oh yeah, that, right, you know, that was the birth of the Essenes, the whole concept of Hanukkah. The dominance of the Greek language, like how did that even become a thing? Or the rise of the Roman Empire, all of these events happened within that 400 years. The Old Testament reflects none of it. So here are a few things that you need to know before we can actually move forward to understanding the significance of this Simeon passage. Now, many of you, if you're versed well in your Old Testaments, you would already know who the Assyrians are. You would be familiar with the Babylonians and you would know who the Persians are because they figured prominently in the Old Testament. Those were the nations that played different roles in the history of Israel. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they emptied the land and they carried the Israelites into exile. Many of us know that story. And then the Persians, they came in and they won a war. See how it's always fighting? Lots of fighting happening. And the Persians, they actually allowed a remnant of the Israelites to return to their homeland again. But the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians, they weren't the only outside groups to shape the history of the Jewish people during the intertestament period. The history of the Jewish people was also affected by both the Romans and the Greeks before them. So we need to take a look at a few things that have happened. After the Persians defeated, were defeated by a guy named Alexander, the Greeks invaded Palestine. With them, they brought their language and their culture, their architecture, their names, their styles of clothing, and their entertainment. This is really important to understand, this shift from the Persians to the Greeks. Because what this shift did was it brought these cultural expressions that shape who everybody living in that culture, no matter how much you push against it, 
The fact that the Greek language was spoken, the fact that the culture, their architecture, their names, their styles of clothing, the entertainment, all of that was affecting Jewish life. No matter how set apart they tried to be, the influence of the Greeks was long-lasting. We, we know this because the entire New Testament was written in Greek, but in the Old Testament, you see nothing of Greek. But the entire New Testament as we know it is written in Greek, and what, there's little sections in Aramaic, but let's not get into that. And when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, who actually spoke Latin, he still chooses to write in the Greek language. But the story of the Greeks doesn't end with Alexander. You see, Alexander's empire, it actually split. This is, this is a total normal history thing. Nothing ever stays the same. People always have issues with some kind of leader in some kind of place. And so what do we do? We split. We make new things. We branch off. Look at Christianity. They split into four parts, actually, two of which are important for us to understand the context of the New Testament. The first one, the Ptolemies were centered in Egypt and they ruled over Palestine. They treated the Jews actually really well. It was a, a fruitful time for the Jewish people. But eventually the Solicides, I think is what you call them, the second group, and this is an important group to understand, they took control. So a shift in power happens. And they were absolutely brutal. So brutal that they forced pagan religion on the Jews and they set up an altar to Zeus. You ever heard of Zeus? So imagine the Jewish temple, which they hold very important in their culture, and there's a, a statue of Zeus at the center of your temple courts and you're forced to worship him. That's what's happening at this time during this 400-year span. And so what happened is, is, of course, many people objected to the persecution and they rebelled. And this rebellion is known as the Maccabean Revolt. And so the Maccabeans were a group of Jews that, that ramped up against uh, this group of people that had, had put Zeus in their temple. They wanted their temple back. And this revolt worked. The, the Jews gained independence, which lasted until 63 BC. This is what we're always fighting for, right? We're always fighting for rights. We're always fighting for independence and things like that. And it never actually really seems to last. And so in this case, it lasted until 63 BC when the Romans took control. But that charged atmosphere, like they never really got over that. Between Jewish culture and secular Greek culture, it remained well into the time, that, that charged atmosphere remained well into the time of the New Testament and the story that we're reading about Jesus. It was actually the Maccabean revolt and the rededication, the capturing of the temple, the rededication of the temple to God that brought the celebration that Jews celebrate today that we as Christians often think is the Jewish Christmas, it's not. It has nothing to do with what we celebrate. It actually has to do with the Maccabean revolt and the recapturing of the temple and them celebrating Hanukkah. And there's a whole story behind the candles and all of that, but I, would, I don't need to get into that. Jews to this day celebrate this holiday to remember the events leading up to the return of the temple to the Jews. That sounds very Jewish, doesn't it? Here's the key thing that I want you to notice. 
for the Jewish people who scripture says are to be set apart from the culture. They're to be different. The coming of Greek culture represented a moral and spiritual crisis for the Jews at the time. The real question was, and it actually remains today, is how were they to deal with this invading culture? They wrestled with this question, and we see them wrestling with this question during the time of the events of the New Testament takes place. And it remains actually an important question for us today. What do we do with how culture affects us from being set apart? Now, essentially, the Greek culture was so dominant, it was so attractive that many of the Jews struggling to, struggled to maintain their Jewish distinctives, their identity in the one true God, their identity as one nation serving God. Now, because of the Greek culture and the Maccabean revolt and the history, the sort of tension that that created throughout history, we see a shift in Jewish identity from the Old Testament moving into the New there's two new groups that were not present in the Old Testament. And these two groups emerge, and they're some of the most dominant groups in our New Testament. We know them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, in the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels, they are the main antagonists. So who are they? Where did they come from? Have you ever, ever asked those questions while reading the Gospels or the New Testament? They're important questions to ask. So if we rewind the clock back to the Maccabean period, this is why you should really Google it and start to read up on it as a Christian, we see the Jewish rulers becoming more and more corrupt because that's what tension does. Tension, especially political tension, creates corruption, not just amongst the political people, but amongst individuals as well. If you don't believe me, just like look around. That's what COVID has done in our era today. We don't just have political tension. We have individual tension all around the room. It's around your living room right now. It's a part of every conversation that you're probably having. Now, here's what happens. So as they become more and more corrupt, the early supporters of these rulers turned against them, and they became known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the radical reformers. The Pharisees were the ones that said, we're not going to put up with this, this corruption. We're going to split away from these people who remain supportive, who were the Sadducees. The Sadducees ran the temple. The Pharisees were the Jewish rabbis, the one who went around and taught. They were the ones who opened up Judaism so you could convert to be a Jew, not just be born into it. They were High-ranking priests and aristocratic laymen centered in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were both Jewish, and they hated each other. Does any of this at all sound familiar? Different groups of the same religion, and they actually don't like each other. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other, but in the New Testament... They found a common enemy in Jesus. 
So when Jesus was born and the story we're looking at today was happening, times were not good at all because the Jews were engulfed in Roman culture, in religiosity, and in corruption. They were not really any different than the culture around them. They just practiced religious rituals and argued about scripture and who was reading it right or who was reading it wrong. They would fight over who was a sinner and what they should do about it all the while projecting hate to anyone outside of their belief system. None of them could get along with each other, and the culture around them hated them. It's actually creepy, folks, of how familiar this sounds to me today. Anyway, I won't go on a rant about that. The point that I'm trying to show you is that during the time of Jesus' birth and leading up to it, was not good times at all. But sometimes our good times are actually bad times in the way that it's affecting us and pulling us away from the one we're called to follow. And it's also interesting to me, our Christmas story, the leading up to it, the thing the church calls the season of Advent, It's really interesting to me because our version of Advent is all about joy, hope, peace, and love. But leading up to the birth of Jesus was far from jolly. It was far from peaceful. And it didn't really hold much hope. This is why when you learn about a true expression of Advent, the one that the Christian church actually represents, not the 2020 version of fluffy Christmas, It's actually about anticipating hope, love, joy, and peace. Now, when you anticipate something, it means that you're realizing you don't currently have it. You can't anticipate something you already have. And so the Advent season is about anticipating hope, love, joy, and peace. It's about preparing our hearts for these things. Advent is actually about getting our hearts right in preparation for the true meaning of Christmas. The birth of the Messiah, Jesus, and the restoration of hope, love, joy, and peace that this baby would bring into the world. You see, the world was lacking in these things, and I think today the world is lacking in these things. Sure, the people had freedom of religion, they could worship God even under Roman rule, yet they had no joy, no peace, no hope, no love, just two different groups that fought about politics, scripture, and religion. Two groups that no one else in the Roman culture could stand, including the Romans themselves. You see, politics and power had caused the Pharisees and the Sadducees to no longer long for a new king. The kind of king that would make their nation great again and bring peace and joy to the people. They liked actually being the ones in power. They liked how things were. And so the coming of a Messiah was actually a bit of a problem. But then there was your average Jew. The ones who remembered the history of their nation the ones who took the stories of their ancestors seriously, the ones who remembered that Roman culture was not actually their culture, that they were resident aliens within Rome, 
the ones who were still anticipating the birth of a king, this is Simeon. He's not one of them. Simeon is a devout and righteous man waiting for God to rescue his people. Notice in the New Testament, it never says about a Pharisee or a Sadducee that they are a devout, righteous person. They would tell you they are, but scripture never refers to them that way. It's normal dudes like Simeon who are hearing from the Holy Spirit and responding to the Holy Spirit that are devout and righteous men waiting for God to rescue his people. You see, it's difficult to be rescued when you don't even realize you need rescuing. What actually happens is, is when the rescue shows up, you fight against it because you're not able to recognize your need to be rescued. This is why Luke gives us this story to remind us about who we are and where God wants us to be. That's why Simeon says that he can die now. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. Now he's holding this child. Put yourself into this narrative for a second. So you're Mary and Joseph, and you go into the temple, and here's this creepy old dude and says, Give me the kid. Like, that's kind of what's happening here, right? I, I'm sure it was, it was a little... One thing you have to remember is that they were very communal in nature. They weren't individualistic like us. And so in community, you would have easily handed the child over. In, in individualistic society, uh, we, would, we would hold the child back. So they're very communal in nature. So they're very much like, yes, t- by all means. You're, you're a Jew just like we're Jews. Here, you're part of the family. Here's my baby. So when you read that, it's creepy to us, very normal to them. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He's holding the child. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. That's a big statement, folks. Not just the Jewish nation, but you have prepared this in the sight of all nations. A light for revelations to the Gentiles. Oh my goodness. The Gentiles and the Jews, they hate each other. They hate each other more than the Pharisees and the Sadducees hate each other. This is like a big deal that this child will not only uh, uh, save a nation, the nation of Israel, but will also be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people, Israel. His eyes had seen salvation, salvation for all nations. Simeon knows that all the promises from God are being fulfilled in this very child. This normal, devout Jew who's not caught up in all the culture around him, all the politics, all the fighting, all the needing to be right, just listens and responds to the Holy Spirit and he sees salvation and is now willing to let his life go. He knows the promises like this that Jeremiah makes in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, verse 23, chapter 23, verses five to six. 20 more years and I'll get all that right. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's insinuating that there's branches that are corrupt. But I'll rise up for David a righteous branch. Listen to what he says. A king who who will reign wisely. Again, obviously other kings are not. And he'll not only reign wisely, he'll do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord. You'll see that in your Bible, capital letters. Jesus is Lord. The Lord, our righteous Savior. Folks, Simeon knows that hope is being restored. That Jesus will be their king and he will reign wisely. Not like those who seek power, status, and wealth. But he'll reign with love, bringing peace and joy to a broken world. You see, the story of Simeon and his reaction in the temple, it calls us back to prepare our hearts for God to restore his people. It calls us into a posture of love, hope, joy, and peace as we celebrate the birth of our king. How much has culture affected that celebration? You see, Jesus brought salvation to the world through his sacrifice and death on the Roman cross. We're going to get into that next week. The battle, though, folks, has been won. Hope has been restored and Jesus has conquered the enemy so that we can live at peace today. That's something to celebrate, but I think it's something we miss in the Jesus story. At least we sure don't seem to express it. You see, during these difficult times that we're living in, these COVID restrictions, the divided opinion about our world today, they really are not that different from the time of Jesus. But now we have an option. We have something different that the Jews didn't have in the first century. We have our King. We have our Savior. Our Messiah has come. So instead of letting the ways of the culture around us that creates the complaining, that creates the entitlement, the lack of love, the lack of peace, why don't we step back and celebrate in the Advent season and prepare our hearts like Simeon did? Because then you would have a posture of, I'm good now. I'm at complete peace with who I am in Christ. Why not let Jesus bridge the gap of the divide between us and bring peace here on earth? I believe that it's through his church, and I believe this with a lot of study behind it, that he is calling us to be different. That the church is now the people of God that are set apart to embody the spirit of Christmas, to be the ones in a broken culture who love others unconditionally, who hold on to hope even when things seem hopeless and bring joy and peace to a world that has lost itself. Simeon could rest in peace knowing that his Savior was born. That's all of these things could now, all of these things, folks, that Simeon's experiencing could now be our reality under King Jesus. But that depends. Is Jesus your king?
or do you follow Rome? So this Christmas, prepare your hearts for the birth of Jesus. And prepare your hearts for the hope, the hope that we have and the hope that we hold on to one day of Jesus' return again. To end evil, to transform the world back to the garden, the place where we lived a complete peace directly in God's presence. As I turn things over to Tamil this morning to reflect on what I've just talked about, I want you to begin to prepare your hearts and let God speak to you through his Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives in us now. And I want to leave you with the hope that we still have from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4. And this is what we'll launch into next week. It says this, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is the promise we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. My favorite Christmas carol is O Holy Night. Do you know the one that I'm talking about? I'll spare you the pain of listening to me try to sing it. But there's something that I find incredibly powerful about that song. And I think that it's the honesty. The lyrics really capture the reality that when Jesus was born, hope broke into a world that was tired and broken and full of pain. My favorite part of the song is the line that says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. The reason Jesus' birth brought about so much hope was because he was born into a world that was so weary and so in need of him. Advent is an interesting season because in a lot of ways, it's actually really countercultural. In our world, as soon as Halloween is over, everything quickly becomes full of jingle bells and tinsel and Santa Claus and Christmas trees. Christmas is marketed as a season of celebration and happiness. But Advent gives us permission to acknowledge that things aren't yet as they should be. It's a season of waiting. It's a season that helps us remember that we are people who are desperately in need of hope and peace and joy and love because sometimes in our world, it's hard to find these things. And these are the gifts that God gives to us in Jesus Christ, who came into our world 2,000 years ago as a little baby and who's with us now and who will come again one day to restore everything to the way that it should be. And so regardless of what we're going through, we can know that there's always hope. As we close our service this morning, I'm going to invite you to take a minute to reflect on the ways that you are experiencing weariness in this very strange Advent season. We can only really experience hope when we dare to be honest about the ways that things aren't really yet as they should be. And so where are you experiencing weariness? this Advent. And now, what is the hope that you're holding on to in this season? 
How is the truth that we're preparing to celebrate, the reality that God has came into the world in Christ to redeem us and that he's here with us now, today, every moment, and that he's gonna come back and restore all things. How is this bringing you hope in your current circumstances? The Old Testament is full of examples of people who held on to hope even in the midst of terrible suffering. And Jesus is the fulfillment to their hope. And he offers us more than enough hope for every circumstance that we might face today. I'm going to close this morning with one of those passages from Lamentations 3, 19 to 27. It says, I'll never forget the trouble, the utter lostness, the taste of ashes, the poison I've swallowed. I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember the feeling of hitting the bottom. But there's one other thing I remember, and in remembering, I keep a grip on hope. God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love couldn't have dried up. They're created new every morning. How great is your faithfulness? I'm sticking with God. I say it over and over. He's all I've got left. God proves to be good to the man who passionately waits to the woman who diligently seeks. It's a good thing to quietly hope, quietly hope for help from God. May you experience God's unfailing hope right where you are this Advent season. What a powerful passage from a book of lament that, that we very often don't refer to. I just wanted to take this last moment in the service to pray for you because I know that this Advent season is different. I know that it is stressful. I know that it's different for each of us in different ways. And so I just believe that I can't solve those things, but God can. He can bring you a peace that no one else can bring. And so will you just bow your heads with me as we revere him in prayer? Father, we thank you, Lord. We give you thanks because of who you are, because of the grace that you offer each of us and your gift of salvation. We thank you, Lord, that we don't belong here, that we belong with you, and we long and hope to be with you one day, living in perfect peace and in perfect harmony, reunited with those that we love that we've lost. But Lord, here we are, living in the midst of turmoil and cultural stress and arguing and all the different challenges that we have today. And I just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring a peace amongst your Christian people. Bring a peace amongst those who believe in you. Bring unity so that we can, can make a difference in our world, so that we can bring the love, the joy, the peace, and the hope that your Advent season offers. Lord, help us to be a witness by giving us an amazing peace so that we can live at peace with others. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, and grace to all who love our Lord, Jesus Christ, with an undying love. Amen.